Hello, 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 and welcome to this episode of the Psycom Toolkit podcast. This is the show for those of you who want to start doing science communication or those who are already doing it so they can gain more tools to level up their Psycom confidence. I am Soph and I am your host. I am a scientist turned science communicator and I am super passionate about giving everyone the skills they need to be confident psychomers, as well as always learning more myself so I can improve as well. I always feel I should record this opening to the podcast so I can just drop it into each episode so it's the same every time and would save me repeating myself with each time I record a new episode. But I never do it. But I kind of like the variety though. Keeps me on my toes and keeps you on your toes. Well, here we are then. We are more than halfway through the first season of the podcast. And today is a special episode because it is the start of the interviews that I wanted to incorporate into the pod. When I was planning out what this podcast might look like, I wanted to share some solo episodes. I wanted to share more about the things I use in my Psycom, what I've learned in my Psycom career so far, and other thoughts and opinions of mine. But I am very much still learning about the field too. And also my experience is definitely not the same as everyone else's. So to make this the ultimate toolkit that I aspire for it to be one day, hopefully, I needed to bring in the expertise and experiences of a whole host of other wonderful communicators, both in science and out of science too. So we could also see what we can learn from them too. And today is the first one. So not only do you get to listen to my dulcet tones, but those of my fabulous first guest, Erin Winnick. Erin is a mechanical engineer by background who now does science communications for the International Space Station. Does it get any cooler? I think not. In this episode, we talked to her about her current role, but also the previous science writing roles she's had as well. We talked to her about SciComm internships, using fashion for SciComm, and also a few insights into using TikTok. Yes, we are diving straight in there with TikTok. Oh, and bonus, we get to learn a few little snippets about some of the awesome research going on on board the ISS too. So without further ado, I am thrilled to introduce you to Erin Winnick. I'm so thrilled that you can give up your time and chat to me today. I am so excited to talk to you. And I think you're actually the very first guest on the podcast as well when Ooh. I put all these things together. Exciting. So that's exciting. <laughs> um, yeah, so welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. No, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's actually the first time we've spoken in person rather than just kind of odd messages on Instagram over over the years so it's it's great to finally actually be chatting to you <laughs> I know it feels like you know someone so well when you've like had a connection online for so long and the SciCon community has some pretty great opportunities to be able to do that but um yeah, yeah it's, it's awesome to be able to talk 
Um, so I think you were one of the first science communicators that I started following on Instagram when I started this whole psychom journey of mine <laughs> back in 2016 or 2017, whenever it was. And I have always loved following the cool things that you have and are still very much doing and the style that you bring to all your science communication. But then when I was doing the, a bit of like prep and background research for this, I was discovering more and more really incredible things that you have done so now I'm even more totally in awe of what you're doing <laughs> oh, and kind you. of <laughs> kind of little like fangirling here a little bit um, that, oh, and thanks. especially that I finally get to chat to you as we've mentioned um so yeah there are many many things um that I would love to chat to you about so I'm going to stop rabbiting on um and <laughs> awesome. just get to it <laughs> so you currently have what is probably one of my dream jobs and it's a shame that I a live in the UK and b that I'm also a biologist by background but you work at the Johnson Space Centre as a science communication specialist for the International Space Station which sounds freaking awesome so it's maybe, a heck of a title I know it's I know <laughs> it's, it's a long one but it sounds pretty incredible <laughs> um maybe maybe you can start by telling us a little bit more about your role there and what that involves yeah so you know, first of all, I'll say biologists could definitely do this job too, but fantastic um, news. <laughs> <laughs> so basically what all of that means is I am a storyteller for all of the science is conducted aboard the International Space Station. So a lot of people think of the space station kind of just as this outpost where people go live, but mm -hmm. it's really an orbiting laboratory where Thousands of experiments have been conducted over the 20 years that people have been living aboard it continuously, more than 3,000 experiments, actually. And during every like given increment or um, expedition, which is about six months, hundreds of experiments are conducted. So our job, me and the team that I work with, is to try to share as much of that as we can with the public and the benefits of having this orbiting laboratory up there and all the amazing things that both the astronauts are doing, as well as some of the autonomous experiments that are housed up there and provide awesome data on things like astrophysics and earth science. Yeah, I don't know how much you can say, but maybe you can tell us about some of the cool science that has been happening up on there recently. Yeah, so many things. Um, we just recently had um, Crew 1 return and Crew 2 launch. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was uh, basically different sets of astronauts swapping. And with that, some new science goes up, some new science comes down um, with the different samples and things that are returning. But some of the things that they've been doing really recently because of that is when um, some astronauts first get up there, there's a lot of human-related research, um, samples and things that are conducted and kind of like baselines for right before they launch, right when they get up there. So there's some cool ones that actually use virtual reality where they put these headsets on and they're able to use that to take measurements of like how they perceive their motion, um, how they're able to kind of respond to different cues, how their senses pick up different things and how that um, in microgravity, of course. So now that they're in this new condition, basically, how does this affect them as people? And so we can be able to use this information to be able to understand better how our bodies will behave when we're going to places like the moon or Mars on mm -hmm. over a long duration mission, because that's going to take years. Mm -hmm. So basically, the space station is kind of like a testing ground for all of that, as well as providing us this microgravity platform performing for helping us back on Earth. So for example, some of the recent stuff that's been happening for benefits on Earth is there's a lot of protein crystal growth experiments that happen, which are really important for drug development. So basically, in microgravity, we can form these higher quality crystals without gravity affecting them. The crystalline structures can be 
uh, much more refined. And this can help scientists with getting uh, higher quality drug treatments and better understanding these different um, proteins, which we have many, many proteins in our bodies. And the more we can understand those, the better we can understand how to help treat different things that might be wrong with us. Um, so we've actually had some cool things that have come out of that. We've actually developed even things like artificial dog and cat blood based on research that's been happened wow. uh, happen on the space station. Yeah, there's even a treatment in clinical trials for uh, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. Um, so there's some really cool stuff that happens up there. And like I said, there's thousands, so so many things that have happened. But those have been some really cool, interesting ones um, that I've been following. And I'm interested to see kind of where how they play out in the future, too. Yeah, yeah no, that's that's really awesome. I th- and I think a lot of people don't even realize that all these experiments go on on the station. They're probably just thinking there's it's this really cool thing that's floating up in space and astronauts get to go there. Yeah. Um, so it must be the coolest thing getting to share that with everyone. And like ultimately, again, like you've said, like show the importance of why we have this station. Yeah. And, you know, our first step is always to tell people it's up there because there's a lot of people that still don't know. So like that's kind of our first milestone kind of as a communicator is just to be like, this is there. And we've been doing this for more than 20 years now. And the next step is in this place is a laboratory. And here's why it's important. So it's kind of like we have to always if there's people that aren't familiar with it, we kind of have to walk them through that journey You know, thinking about science communication audiences. That's one like audience that we're communicating to. And then the other is kind of the research and academic community to be able to inform about the different results that have happened, um, talk about some of the open um, data source opportunities that are available to scientists um, for participating in this, and then as well as um, our like legislature. And for since it's an International Space Station, we have lots of different international partners like um, JAXA and ESA in Japan and Roscosmos in Russia. Um, so we kept a, a lot of different audiences in mind to kind of like show the value of this um, and how this is really benefiting you. So how do you tailor different things um, to all those different audiences, like someone who just wants to know what's going on up there or then the, the more academic audiences, as you mentioned? Yeah, it often depends on which platform we're creating content for. So, um, for example, if I'm creating something for LinkedIn, that's probably the place I would more likely share some of our researchers' guides and stuff that's for people that are interested, opportunities for doing research on station. Uh, Maybe I'll write a little bit more technical wording in my post about some results that have come about. But on Twitter, I'll probably keep it a little bit more high level. And if people want to dive in, often provide links for, you know, more detail. Um, Instagram, obviously, so this are a really great general public platform for us because there's some pretty cool visuals not everything mm. I mean some of the some of the best science honestly it just looks like um, a silver box and then we have to really <laughs> get people excited because we don't have some cool worms crawling around to get people interested or something like yeah, that yeah um, but the the biggest thing that kind of works for all of them is what benefit is this providing to that group of people and if it's uh, the quote-unquote general public you know mm-hmm. there's, we talk a lot about disease research or spinoff technologies, um, basically saying like, how has this helped in relation to maybe something like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or cancer research or surgery, something that people can say, oh, I have a family member that has had this, I can um, relate to and understand why this is important. And then, you know, when we're talking about to a legislative audience, maybe what um, amount of jobs is this provided? What type of value is this providing commercially for different businesses? How is this benefiting businesses specifically in your state if we're talking the U.S.? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if we're going academic, again, like where, what opportunities is this providing to you? What can you learn from this? How is this contributing to your field? 
Um, so it's, it's a lot of just tailoring that messaging to the benefits to that person. And then just the overall awe of it, you know, mm-hmm. like how, how amazing is this as a humanity, we've had a pretty amazing engineering marvel to be able to accomplish this and talking a bit about that camaraderie um, and international aspect of collaboration. And of course, all the people that are up there as well, because I think people's stories resonate yes. so well. Absolutely. The astronauts are some of our best storytellers and advocates. And so part of our job, too, is even helping them be better storytellers. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one of my coworkers more directly works a lot with this. You know, astronauts can't be an expert in every single one of those, but we want to be able to equip them with the right tools to be able to talk intelligently about these and give good examples of the science that's conducted uh, while they, they are up there. So there's a lot of helping them be better advocates and better communicators in addition to being better communicators ourselves. So just jumping back a little bit, you mentioned that you kind of have this feel for which audiences that you have on which different social media platforms. So for a science communicator who's maybe trying to do that themselves, or even if they're working for a company trying to do that, what can they start to do to really understand what type of audience they have on what platform? More than anything, I'd say there's a lot of experimentation and seeing what your audience responds to. Um, because sometimes you can also, even if something doesn't get a ton of likes on a specific platform, you can see a tremendous feedback to a specific type of content. So maybe 10 people get a huge value out of something on one platform and then, but then you post something else and it gets, you know, 500 likes, but you don't really get much feedback on it. So it's doing a lot of experimentation to see what people respond to on each one. Um, you can definitely look at some of your analytics, depending on if you have some type of additional software or just what is provided by the platform itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, sometimes you can just straight ask people, you know, especially if you're doing a personal you know, branding stuff, just like making a post and saying like, you know, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself or ask a very direct question? Twitter polls are a great way to do that. People love talking about themselves. So you'll <laughs> definitely get some responses if you put those type of questions out there. You obviously look after all these social media um, accounts um, as part of a company or a brand. And then you also have your own personal um, accounts as well. So how do you find um, looking after the social media accounts for those different kind of aims? Like what are the key Mm -hmm. things that you think about differently from your own to looking after one for a company? Yeah, so um, the one that I directly run for the space station is at um, ISS underscore research on Twitter. Mm-hmm. But then I write, make, create content for a lot of the other space station accounts and NASA accounts. But the one that's the one I have direct control over. And then on my own personally, I do um, mainly Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. I have some other accounts on there too. For me personally, since to be honest, since I've been running, doing more social media as part of my full time job. Um, I definitely have dialed back my personal social media a little bit just for my own personal sanity. Yeah, um, I understand that. I think <laughs> <laughs> when you're when you're on Twitter all day as part of your job and writing Instagram posts, maybe not are you're not as inspired in your free time to be able to go do that. But um, that's part of what made me inspired to go do TikTok uh, because it was a an area of just being able to be creatively free and have fun with it because um, I wasn't doing any of that with my my regular job. Mm-hmm. And also, um, I will add, though, what you asked about, like, my different approaches. For my personal social media now, I have freed myself of the burden of consistency because I I had been doing a lot of – when I didn't do social media as part of my full-time job, it was building my brand and, like, wanting to kind of basically build up my credentials to be able to get a job like I have now. 
And um, I was, it was a little bit stressful when I was starting this to be able to keep up my consistency on all the platforms and do all of the quote, right things perfectly. And now I've freed myself of that and just do things when I'm creatively inspired on my personal stuff. But so now when I, but for my actual, the space station accounts and stuff that I run, there's a lot more planning ahead within NASA. I have one person that reviews some of my posts for me. Luckily she can do it on a pretty uh, quick turnaround basis. So if there's something that needs to happen fast, it's in social media, sometimes it does. Um, she's able to do that. Uh, there's a lot of balancing of content and for running for a brand coordination with other um, accounts within the NASA brand, um, mm -hmm. because NASA has a lot of news coming out all the time. Yeah. So, <laughs> so many centers, so many things like we don't want to compete with each other on stuff. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of pre-planning. And uh, if we have something huge coming out, making sure it can be amplified by other NASA accounts. But if it's something medium, you know, we might coordinate with just one other center or something where um, it, it's relevant to. So NASA is this interesting like network of a ton of social media accounts. So even when you have your one area in one account that you own, there's a lot of working with people who run all of the other ones around as well. But just being on the platform and consuming content is important too, to be able to just maintain your understanding of them and what works and what doesn't work. And for me, that's like a great value for my job too, because I might not be able to be as necessarily experimental with like the space station and NASA stuff, but I can do that with my own and kind of see how something performs, try out a new tool, like, you know, Instagram released reels relatively recently. Mm -hmm. um, and I can test that out on my own and like see how that performs and then take that knowledge and apply it to the other stuff that I do. So before your current role, you worked at MIT Technology Review. Um, mm -hmm. So what kind of stuff did you get up to there and does it differ to what you're doing now, obviously, apart from the topics and things like that? Yeah, so um, I, that was a science journalism role where this is a little bit more when you're internal to an organization doing science communication, there's a little bit less of the, the journalism aspect of it. I'm still doing writing and editing and stuff, but the type of stories that you're chasing after and the cadence at which you're producing content is a little bit different. So there, my um, actual jobs were first, I was the associate editor of the future of work, which means I covered a lot of automation and manufacturing and like future workplace type stuff. And then I transitioned to be uh, being a space writer during the rest of my time there. Um, and I did a lot on newsletters when I was there. So um, I started up two different newsletters and helped run um, another, another one while I was there. So that was a really interesting experience to be able to Kind of learn about what does well in a newsletter context and um, getting subscribers to a newsletter, that sort of thing. Um, and that was my first real, like outside of internships, full-time like science communication role. Because mm -hmm. um, I had run my own business a little bit. I'd done a lot of freelance work, but that was the first time like working in a newsroom and like producing things at a certain cadence. Uh, it's a little bit different than within NASA because I'm kind of doing a lot more higher level strategy. There's a lot more level of reviews. We're often the first people putting out something. So rather than finding a story, I kind of like, there's certain levels of things that I have to cover. For example, like stuff could be launching on one of the upcoming commercial resupply launches. We need to cover a certain amount of those things, you know, where in journalism, you don't have those, that, that same level of, you're trying to get the information out there at NASA and there you're like trying to find the stories and things that are most relevant to cover. Um, in journalism, you also have to come in it with a pretty critical eye, you know, and um, it's a little bit different of finding the stories. I, I, the way I, context I put it is as a political journalist, you're not always covering the positive things about politics. Mm -hmm. As a science journalist, you definitely don't want to just be covering all of the positive things about 
um, about science. You want to be finding the things that need to be improved and helping report that and bring it to light. Well, in my current job, it's a little bit more of a PR role. I'm not, I'm not going to put out something negative about NASA, mm-hmm. you know? So there's a little bit of a different context there um, to, to how you're approaching those different topics. So what is the process of writing uh, more of a feature article in that kind of journalistic space? How do you get from start to finish? Yeah, I starts out usually with an idea and just kind of doing some digging and research um, to make sure a it's a story you want to tell and to kind of see what you think the storyline needs to be. Um, and then it usually goes into interviews. Um, sometimes those are over the phone, sometimes in person, obviously current world conditions, a little bit more over the yeah. phone. Um, but, uh, and finding, so sometimes the, the character that you want to tell the story about comes first. Like there's a person that's going to be the center of the story. Sometimes you kind of find that through your research. Um, and of course, some of the more newsy stories don't always have a more human centric character. Those are feature stories typically have that more of a focus. Um, and then it's usually just kind of doing a lot of the information gathering, whether it's doing those different interviews or reading all the different papers um, around certain things, be able to get a, a good grasp on this topic to be able to represent it appropriately. Personally, I usually would then go through interviews and pick out the, the parts that were most relevant to the story to me and kind of like lay them out in a Word doc and kind of put the puzzle together, you know, and like start to have all the pieces land in place um, and write the bridges between that and uh and lay it out and then it's kind of whatever your personal writing process is it kind of the piece evolves and your first draft is not going to be good yeah Um, and then yeah there's a lot of revision and removing things around um and then if you have a good editor which oftentimes if you're at a publication like that you you hopefully do it's asking them questions letting letting them put a critical eye on it and for reference, a lot of editors will put a lot of edits on your story. There's like a lot of red there. Don't feel like that's a bad thing. This is the first person looking at something from the outside. And to me, it always felt better to have an editor that I knew was going to really go through it and help improve a piece than make me feel better and be like, looks good, publish it. Yeah, you know? I completely agree. Completely agree. Yeah. So editors are a huge part of the process. So where, where did you get your stories from? Was it mainly from press releases or, or where did you get them? Yeah, usually not press releases, honestly, except for like really, really big news. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times there's um, there's uh, there's a, a lot of digging that has to be done and then connections in a network that you build up to be able to um, help you find the stories that you want to tell rather than the stories that companies want you to tell. Yeah. Um, and, you know, not to say that all press releases are bad. They're an important way to be able to get information. But oftentimes it would more come from having a, a really good understanding of your beat or your area um, and kind of tracking the trending things and the topics. Um, and like I said, the more you build out that network of sources, the more you're going to have incoming stories to you from those people um, that help you help you better cover that your, your area of expertise. So as a writer, what are you looking for in a good pitch or a good press release? Um, what is going to make you say yes and pitch that one to your editor? It's a good question. Um, when there is, when it's something I haven't seen before and when it's something that I feel like is, is an, import, an important step forward for an area of science, you know, if it's an area of, that I have a decent amount of knowledge in, 
Um, when I was, for example, the future of work editor, I would see a lot of similar pitches about people claiming some, for example, new AI that's removing bias from hiring. And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, it's not what AI does. <laughs> AI is biased. You know, like there's certain things like that. So I think being able to uh, pitch what's new about a thing, um, having good imagery and imagery assets is always helpful. Um, and I think being, if, if there is a human element to it, like we've talked about a, a, a lot before. Yeah. Um, and also if I can just see the obvious story to it, um, because there's differences also between writing a news story and writing a feature story. Um, and I, I will say though, a decent amount of, if, if, you're, if you're trying to pitch to me to write a story about something, it's different than if you're trying to pitch your story for me to write about. So if like, you're a company that's writing a press release there's something different I'm looking for in that than if like, you know, you freelance writer coming to me to pitch a story that you want to write. Cause if you're pitching me like that as a writer, I'm more looking also for like, what type of stuff have you written in the past and um, what, what, what's something new you're going to bring to this topic. You mentioned that you might have editors to send work to, but if you had to edit yourself, like when, when you're writing, you can almost get too close to it and not really <laughs> see the big picture so how how do you take a step back from it to be able to edit your own work more critically you know it's definitely hard when you don't have that outside input I think that one of the things that a lot of writers do is they tend to if you when you file to an editor usually they end up cutting out a third of your story usually people Mm -hmm. tend to file too long so I think that um taking a critical eye at whether something needs to be there or whether it's actually just slowing the, the pace of the story down is something really good to, to take a look at. Um, and, you know, taking time away from a piece is, is really impactful because you can give it a, a fresh perspective if you've slept on it and um, taken time away from it. People can get really attached to a story and just at least give yourself a few, like 24 hours to sleep on something and then come back and look at it. Um, if you have someone you trust that's, um, even if they're not a writer, uh, have them look at it and say, hey, is this understandable to you? Send it their way. Um, that can be really helpful because sometimes you'll be like, oh, this is perfectly clear. You know, this description of this specific scientific thing that I've worked on for a long time. And then they go, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Like, well, what, what does this mean? That, that can be really helpful too. What would you say, um, let's say, are your three top tips for writing about science that isn't your own? Writing about science that isn't your own. Um, well, I think that, let's say, number one would be, before you talk to the experts, read whatever papers they've written, you know, so you have like a good starting point, but don't feel like you need to sound like an expert when you are interviewing them. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes people feel like intimidated and they want to seem like smart in front of the scientist that um, has written this thing it's okay to ask the quote unquote dumb questions because that's going to get you the quotes, the simple quotes. Yeah. You don't just need to ask the questions about these really technical aspects of these, like these papers, even if you have a good understanding of it, ask them to explain like, what does this mean? Then I'd say, try to read and stay up to date about the news in that area. Mm-hmm. So for example, if you're just saying, I want to write a lot about um, mechanical engineering in the next year, um, consume a lot of other content related to that sort of stuff because your writing will improve if you, as you read other good writers that write about that specific thing. Um, and then, I mean, I think number three, search out that human story, you know, yeah. like writing about science 
becomes more accessible when there's a human involved um, and when there's emotion and when there's, get this, a story, you know, like rather than just just news, science becomes a lot more accessible when people have a thing that they can relate to. And often that thing is the person, whether it's the struggle, the success, um, what they're passionate about, even a sense of humor. I mean, sometimes you talk to some scientists that are just absolutely hilarious and it would be able to get that across in, in a feature story and like, you know, get that, that emotion and that relatability is really great. Mm. So I think one thing you have kind of sort of come to be sort of known about is like science communication internships. You have created mm-hmm. a blog post with lots of different opportunities that are available and you had um, an internship yourself at The Economist yeah. in London. Um, so how how valuable was that internship experience for you in deciding your future SciComm career path? Yeah, the reason I've become so passionate about this is because while I only had one SciComm internship, I had five total internships while I was in college. So I had four engineering internships, um, which were hugely important for me realizing what I wanted my path to be. And I'm super glad I had those experiences because it gave me the opportunity to work at like engineering companies. But um, the, I, those, all of those internships were really meaningful to me. And I, I'm a huge advocate for trying to a make internships more accessible. All you know, of course, paid, and that's yeah. why all of my lists that I put out there are at least paid. And I try to find well-paying ones too, mm-hmm. and grants that'll help support people to be able to go do this. Because one of the worst things is having inaccessible internships, which yeah, you know, absolutely worsens the yeah, it, yeah. So, um, I the for me having that internship at the Economist was both a really great life experience and also a really great transition between STEM and communication. And obviously I'm still working in the science field, but I'm talking about rather than going a nine to five working at John Deere, which is one of the places I interned and transitioning then over into someone who's working in a newsroom. And I think that being able to give people the ability to try it out and on a short-term basis and know, figure out whether this is for them, whether it's moving in the right, right direction is just a really, really great opportunity. I think a lot of people also just don't know what science communication is, like period. It's, it's, it's you know, growing in popularity, but it gives people more exposure to the field as a whole. Yeah, well, I think knowing what science communication is as a career, because when I was doing it as part of my PhD compared to what I do now as a day job, yes. they're, they're almost worlds apart. Like there's obviously elements that are similar, but yeah, completely different worlds. Yeah, I, I didn't know that I could do this as a career when I entered college. You know, I, I was debating between going into journalism or mechanical engineering, but I chose mechanical engineering because I love making things and I knew I could always go back to journalism, but it would be a lot harder to go back to mechanical engineering. Yeah. Um, and, but I thought of like, oh, if I'm going to be able to combine these two, I'm going to have to be like a technical writer and like help write manuals or something like that. And I looked into that for a little while and I thought that was, oh, this is what I'm going to have to do. And then I kind of realized, okay, like, this outreach and like education and communication thing is important. And then you, your first thought is, oh, it's the Bill Nye's and Neil deGrasse Tyson's and Mythbusters. You got to be on TV. That's like your yeah. only option. And then you realize that there are science communicators that work at hospitals, at universities, at government organizations, as journalists, outreach coordinators. Like there's a lot of aspects to all of this and being able to also just put together an internship list that demonstrates that breadth, I think is really helpful to people. Is it really important for you now then when you do 
like outreach events about careers in STEM that you showcase that you are a science communicator and there's all those options, not just being in a lab or working in engineering and so on. Yeah, absolutely. And because if I had known that earlier, I mean, who knows where I would have ended up at this point. I'm glad that I've taken the path that I have. But um, I think that just making that more clear to people earlier on is is really important. And I one of the things I emphasize now that I work in the space industry is that a lot of times people, when they people think space, they think, oh, I have to be an aerospace engineer or a pilot to be able to work here. And I'm like, no, we have, I work both with PhDs in biology, as well as videographers and t- former teachers, journalists, people who work in accounting, you know, like uh, SpaceX needs accountants too, like all that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So like, no matter what your passion is, you can find a place in that industry. So I think it's the same for all of science. And I really try to emphasize that for people who love communication, because science needs good communicators. Absolutely. So I think I've asked you um, a lot already about the science communication you've done in more of a like professional capacity, but there's mm-hmm. so much you have done in like a personal capacity as well. So firstly, I wanted to ask sort of about fashion and cosplay for science mm-hmm. communication. And the place I have to start is with the Perseverance parachute skirt, which is absolutely yeah. incredible. <laughs> so maybe you can start by telling the listeners all about how that came to exist. Sure. So for the past, like, um, for about five years, I ran my own uh, business, SciChic, that made 3D printed science and engineering inspired jewelry. And um, I started this while I was in college. And it was honestly one of the really great gateway points to me becoming more involved in the science communication and outreach community and discovering more of the people on Instagram. That's when I got involved and made a lot of those connections in that area. Mm -hmm. Um, But although I absolutely loved doing it, um, I decided I wanted to move on to new projects at the end of 2020 and just kind of make stuff for myself. And one of those first things I made just happened to go viral um, after (laughs) I had ended my business, which was um, the Mars Perseverance rover, which landed um, relatively recently on Mars um, when it landed and the big parachute opened to to, um, to allow it to come down, because this was amazing video that it's uh, NASA captured of this. Yeah, like awe-inspiring. Everyone saw this pattern on the parachute looked kind of strange. People were like, what? That's, it wasn't really consistent. You normally think of like a every other, you know, block is a different color type thing. But this was um, a, a little bit different. And people realized that um, the people who had created the parachute had encoded in binary dare mighty things which is um the jet propulsion laboratory slogan um Mm -hmm. within the colors in the inner ring and then the outer ring was like the gps coordinates of jpl so um this kind of caught on and people were really excited about it and i was like i looked at this and went i'd make a good skirt (laughs) um so i worked with my husband i i'd know more about 3d um 3d design he does some graphic design just for fun so i worked with him and we made um a our own version of that parachute pattern and put it onto a circle skirt, which I just ordered for myself. Cause again, I was just making stuff for myself for fun yeah. and it started to take off and go viral and everyone was like, I want to buy this. Um, so I worked with, um, Startorialist, which is an awesome, um, woman owned science and space fashion brand that I worked with a lot. Um, when I was at, uh, Marin Sai Chic, um, they're super cool and they, um, listed it for me and I just, I sold them the design and then we, uh, had a portion of the proceeds going to charity and the rest of it just to go to support their business. Um, but it was really cool to be able to spread this knowledge about this perseverance, um, landing as well as, um, 
what I always say is like space fashion is just a great conversation starter. Like there's not a lot of things that will just get people talking about science just in a room and be able to wear a piece of science in space is a cool way to be able to to bridge that gap and, and start that conversation in a more accessible way. So why and how is fashion and accessories such a powerful way for you to share those science stories? Like why, why did you start doing this? Yeah, it's funny because when I was younger, I wasn't really like, I'm not, I'm not like a hugely like into fashion person. I think Project Runway with the the reality show is kind of my gateway I into love all that of this. <laughs> oh, so good. And now making the cut, which is like the new version of it on yes. Amazon. Absolutely love that yes. show. Um, and uh, the reason I went into mechanical engineering in the first place was really, I love making stuff. And that goes beyond just like, oh, I love making robots. Like I've always loved sewing with my mom growing up. I always sewed my Halloween costumes and things like oh. that. And it's always something that I've, I've really enjoyed and loved, even if I wasn't like, you know, super into going shopping or stuff like that when I was younger. But now that I'm like, I've moved into the more science communication area, it, I've just seen that it's one of the ways that people can like light up and get so excited when they just see you. And like, you know, when it's sometimes you just have to get people on board with the science. And this is just like a visual way of having that from like, right off the bat, people are like, Oh, that's so cool. What is what is that? Why is that pattern that way? Or what does that mean? And it's, mm-hmm. it's a surprisingly easy gateway into into those conversations, and to also engaging a group of people that might not typically be into space or science. Um, I, I often put a lot of um, style hashtags on my posts that are related to science because of the, the fashion angle. And my hope is that that engages and brings in people that might be more there for this, um, the fashion, but then they'll also engage with the science element of it. Because sometimes in the SciComm world, sometimes we can kind of live in this echo bubble of talking to yeah. other scientists. And it's just one of those ways you can help break out of that bubble. Then more recently, you have been using TikTok to share more about science and communicate different science stories. So what what sort of things do you share on there and how does it differ from the other types of science communication that you do? Yeah, I started with TikTok right before like the world shut down into quarantine, which I think is everyone jumped on TikTok like a month and a half after I <laughs> everyone did. Everyone gave it a so go. I, yeah, exactly. Uh, so I'll just say oh, I, was, I was there a full month in advance, you know. But um, for me, it's just been a, like, a really fun platform to play around on um, because it's a very creative platform. Um, and it's one of the first platforms that I think has really grown in popularity after I've been a science communicator. And it's been really fun to be like there from the beginning for this and to, to see it grow and to watch the platform change. Um, I'm someone who really likes to like observe trends and like stuff that's doing really well at the time and when stuff shifts for me, it's a really great platform to free myself to experiment and do stuff and not worry if it gets 300 views or 1.4 million views. Yeah. Um, which like, cause I I've had, I don't know, probably maybe like eight videos go, I think would be considered viral, like over a hundred thousand views. Mm-hmm. And I've had a fair few in like the tens of thousands. And then I've had a, many around like the thousand, 2000 mark, that sort of thing. Um, and so it's been fun to kind of just see what takes off and, put it out there. And when I feel creatively inspired by a trend, go, um, go film my own version of that, or just like this cool science thing that I really want to share that I think people would be interested in. 
you know, set up my phone after work for, for an hour, edit something together and throw it up. Um, sometimes the things that I spend, of course, five minutes on get many more views than the thing that I spent five days on yeah. creating. But isn't that the way of social media? Yeah, sometimes? absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so do you think you could ever use TikTok for like to showcase the ISS research and have like an ISS maybe brand account? Or do you think it's more of a personal thing? Like, do you think companies could use it? Well, yeah, first of all, yes, I absolutely think companies can use TikTok, but you have to use it in less of the typical corporate style, yeah. I guess is how I'd say. There's been, there's like really successful like companies on there. And well, for example, I'll say I love the Washington Post TikTok. I don't know if you follow them. No, I'll have uh, to Dave check Jorgensen, them out. he has done amazing um, with building up a, a brand that's it's kind of centered around, he's like the central face of the Washington Post on TikTok, but he's sharing Washington Post news and just news of the world in ways that, fit with the platform really well. I will say I have applied some of my knowledge to doing Instagram reels for the space station. Yeah. We've just recently started experimenting with that. Um, Cause that's just a platform. There's already like a pretty tremendous following for Instagram on Instagram for the ISS. And so that's been fun. Um, we haven't done like a ton yet, but I've, we've made a couple science videos and it was really cool to just, I think our best one was um, Kate Rubens, um, the NASA astronaut when she came back um, she we made like a science highlights video for it um and our awesome video producer put together like a 30 second version of that we worked together on making it more you know tiktok or instagram reelsy um and it got like 1.6 million views so that was pretty wow. cool consume a decent amount of tiktok content and then kind of start putting stuff out there i also recommend i think one of the things that the platform really does reward is having a similar type of content repeatedly i'm not okay. a big fan of personally doing that because I again I, I care a little bit more about just representing myself on the platform rather than growing to like a million followers on there yeah. so I'll post domino and puzzle related videos in between my my space stuff and sure it's not going to do as well it might hurt me in the long run but you know it's kind of just what I want to do yeah I really loved your videos about um the space area code and also the testing astronaut food one um, yes. What was your favorite TikTok video to make? You know, uh, the, the 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 astronaut food one is the one that got blew up like crazy. The that um, the area code one was one of those ten minute videos that I was like, oh, this is fun. Maybe people like this, and it got like eight hundred thousand views. My personal favorite is one that probably hasn't gotten as many, which was actually just talking about the Kennedy Space Center and the size of the enormous flag on the side of it. Cause I had a ton of fun making it cause I like green screened myself and like stood on a chair to like show the size comparison of like my body to the stars. And like, I don't know, I just had a lot of fun with that one. Um, and so I think, I guess I'd have to say that's probably my favorite. The other is um, when I've gotten to show a little bit more behind the scenes stuff that I've gotten to do because of my job. Like I got to go to um, Nanorax as a, a group that um, helps send stuff to the space station and they invited us over um, to their um, headquarters, I guess, um, their area that they were prepping a, an airlock to go to the space station. I got to assign a piece of it. And so I made a TikTok about like going in the inside of this thing, which is now attached to the space station and has my name on it, which is crazy. Wow. Um, and sharing some of those behind the scenes things. But I think that was also part of the reason that was so exciting for me is because I've been making TikToks only in the time that I've been working from home. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the few things I actually got to go out of my house and do something and share it with people. So I think that also kind of drove my, my me liking that one so much. 
So what are your top tips for like scientists and science communicators who might want to start experimenting with TikTok for SciComm? Yeah, uh, first is just to go follow a ton of people and just consume content for a few hours, which is not hard on TikTok. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but partially consume some like science stuff, but also just consume content from the platform as a whole. Like look at the comedy videos and like trends and things like that. Because I think some of the ways that science content on the platform can be most successful is when it can break out into groups on the platform that are watching it that might not typically be a science or space interested group of people. Um, you know, again, trying to break out of that little bubble because you'll, you'll accumulate a group of followers. I think I have like 37,000 followers on it right now. And so those are all people that are probably interested in science and space. Yeah. But the times I feel like most excited are is when I get one of those videos that really breaks out and I have people that are like, there because that for the area code video was I talked about the area code that any number coming down from the space station would have. Mm -hmm. um, and that area code is Houston's area code. And so I was getting a ton of people on there that TikTok was obviously targeting people that lived in Houston. And so I was getting tons of people that are all like, that's my area code. That's crazy. And they were learning something about the space station because of the place that they lived. Um, so I think that, that that's one of my, one of my things is just, you know, consume the, the content, not just from in the science world, so that you can see the stuff that might appeal to people outside of that. Um, and then just experiment, man, and just try it out and see see what happens. Um, and don't be discouraged if you don't get a viral video in your first, like, few. It's, it, it's rare. I mean, I don't know how many videos I've made at this point. Like I said, I've had, like, somewhere between, like, five and eight that have gone, like, truly blown up. Um, but you're going to have to get through the lulls of the times where you post maybe, like, 15 and like just a, a handful of people see it um but you know and then also if you have um followers on other platforms direct them over so you can to, to your tiktok when you start it so that you can get um just an initial little group of people that'll hopefully at least be like liking and supporting you and like um and giving you feedback and stuff uh last thing i'll add is um, be willing to try out the live function on the app mm. um it has the ability for users to go live on it which again, right at the beginning, you probably won't get a huge number of people that are tuning yeah. in. But if you get a video that's blowing up, go live, like while it's happening, because people, when you're scrolling through TikTok, you can see if a user is live. And if all these people are coming across your video, go live right then, start talking about the video, start answering Q&A questions. You have something you can do that's awesome, but you're going to capture a ton of people that are going to jump in and get to know you a little bit more beyond that that video and hopefully you'll capture more of a following from that. That's a really interesting point. I think also what I find is we consume so much content when we're scrolling but we might like things occasionally or comment on things but I don't think we ever ask ourselves why we're liking that or why we were driven to like comment on it mm -hmm. and engage with it. So I often think if you question why you want to do it then that's going to help you in your creation process as well yeah I completely agree with that because like, just why did you watch a one minute video all the way through like what what kept your interest because that's one of the biggest driving factors I think on TikTok is watch time when you yeah. can re retain someone's attention like what made you stick past the first three seconds and then what made you watch all the way to the end um, and what made you watch five times yeah. if you did? Like, well, well, what was that thing? How long was that video that you watched five times? So what advice would you have for anyone looking to make Psycom their full-time or professional gig and not just a hobby? Yeah, I think that it's, there's a few different ways to do it, you know, and there's ways to, that people have gone 
really hard into building their own brand and really producing a ton of that content, like making it really, once their side hustle like has grown big enough, then they make the transition to doing it full time. I think um, Science Sam is a really good example of that. Mm -hmm. She's a freelance science communicator and she's done a fantastic job in that. then, you know, I think that, as I mentioned, or I've, I've talked about a lot online and just, you know, internships are a really great transition um, to be able to help you make that jump. Uh, building up a portfolio yourself while you still have um, the other, your job and employment is really great so that you can have evidence of your, your value and what you can deliver so that when you apply to a full-time job, you kind of already have a backlog of stuff and they're not taking as much of a risk, not knowing exactly what you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I'll add, sometimes you can make your own job, which is like, you know, kind of, kind of crazy, but sometimes you, the best jobs can come when you can show someone the value that you can deliver as a science communicator, even if they might have a, not have a job listing, like those cold reach outs, whether it's a university, your university department that you can get hired part time with, you know, the engineering department being like, I'm going to help you communicate the results that are coming out. You'd be surprised how receptive to places people like that might be. It's like, um, there's opportunities to make your own opportunity, um, and really just, you know, be okay if it takes a little bit. I mean, this didn't happen overnight for me. And I think sometimes when I talk about my career journey, it looks like, oh, it's a completely obvious, you know, she freelanced and then she got an internship and then she worked full time. Mm-hmm. Like, but oh my gosh, every single one of these decisions, like was so hard. And I just didn't know if I was making the right one at the time, making the decision to leave tech review to come down to NASA was a really hard choice. Um, that was my first, you know, like full-time job in this. And like, I was like, man, like, do I really want to make that whole move? Mm-hmm. Um, to The choice to not accept a full-time engineering job, you know, when I graduated was like a really big choice. And to, to go into the internship in another area after I'd already graduated, I think sometimes people think down on internships after you've graduated. Um, but be willing to take the steps in the right direction without feeling like you've got the perfect job that you're applying for. I feel like I'm still evolving and I don't know where I'm going to be in, you know, 10 years as a science communicator, but those, those uh, little steps in between are really important and can help you understand the science communicator that you want to be. Yeah. And also kind of steps sideways and also backwards and just, just allowing yourself to go in whatever direction feels right for you. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, don't worry about other people's judgment. Obviously, you have to do things to take care of yourself and make the money that you need yeah. to, to live, like, obviously, but, you know, be willing to just consider and take a step back and be self aware of like, what do I really want? And what's going to make me happy? And make take the steps, in the, you know, even outside of communication, just in life, take the steps towards whatever can make you most happy. So I've interviewed you on my blog before as part of my scientist in the spotlight Mm -hmm. series. And you may or may not remember from that, that I like to ask um, everyone the same question at the end of it, completely unrelated to science and psychom, but another one of my passions. And I thought it would just be nice to pull that same question into these (laughs) interviews to wrap it up in the sort of same way. So you, you might know what's coming, but my final question to you is, where should I be traveling to on my next adventure when we can do so safely, of course? Um, so where would you recommend visiting and why? What did I say last time is what I want to know first. I can't was my remember. I gave you? I'm going to have to have a look. <laughs> I have to go look this up now because I'm like, am I going to recommend the same thing? What was my mindset? Because I think I did that interview a while ago. Um, let's see. Well, so I think it's going to be partially influenced by where I want to go, which is one of my trips that I really want to take when I can travel again is to go to New Mexico and so see the very larger array, like the telescope um, radio mm-hmm. array stuff. 
that was one of the trips I was really hoping to take um, when I first came down to the, the, the South and moved down here to Houston. Cause I moved uh, down here around eight months before um, the, the pandemic hit. And, you know, I haven't been traveling since. Um, and I really want to do that. And then potentially the other one is take a, a road trip through Utah to all the different national parks around there. So that's what I would recommend to you because I did do that on the way back from one of my summer internships. Um, I was out in uh, Santa Rosa, which is just north of San Francisco, and drove all the way to Florida from there. And I hit like eight national parks along the way. And Amazing. one of my favorite areas was Utah, which is just, it has this beautiful red rock. And you can go on a great road trip and hit like four or five national parks around there. So um, those will be my answers for you. Very nature focused, but I really love hiking. <laughs> yeah, no, um, then you probably won't be surprised to hear that your answer before was... Um, the Yos- is it Yosemite or Yosemite? I never know which one. Yosemite. Yosemite National Park and the Sentinel Dome, because you mentioned how much you like to hike. So, <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. That's hilarious. Yeah, that, I I went there too on some other internships I had out there. That's my my favorite national park. So not I'm not surprised I said that. But you know, if I'm, I'm nothing if not consistent. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought it would be good to ask you again without looking beforehand to see if it would be yes. along the same lines, like the same. However many years later it is, but. No, thank you for that. I, I really can't wait to be able to travel again because I'm really excited to, to go to the States and travel around different places. So it's on my list. Awesome. Well, if you're down here in Houston, hopefully I can get you out to Johnson Space Center too. That would be amazing. <laughs> if I'm ever there, I will be banging your door down to let me in. Awesome. <laughs> uh, so thank you so much, Erin, for giving up your time to talk to me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to learn more about the psychom that you do. Um, maybe you can remind everyone where they can follow or find you online. Sure. So for my personal accounts, you can find me at Erin Winnick, E-R-I-N-W-I-N-I-C-K, primarily on um, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. I am on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Medium as well, though. Um, and then if you want to check out some of the awesome stuff that I do with um, the space station, check out at ISS underscore research. Um, or check out uh, nasa.gov and all the awesome stuff that we put out there yeah and for anyone listening that doesn't follow you already I would highly recommend it because it is just a joy and you're incredibly inspiring so yeah thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast it's been really really fascinating to chat to you and finally get to chat to you yeah thanks so happy to be here yeah and I feel like there should be some some cool space or astronaut way that we should try and wrap up this interview I don't know if there's like a saying I don't know if they say like over and out or something when they finish communications or something but that's what I'm gonna get here it's so funny here's what I'm gonna say for you whenever the astronauts finish a downlink they say station we are now resuming operational audio communications yeah I really wasn't going to try and repeat that but an interesting little factoid for you Huge thank you again to Erin for her time and being the first ever guest on the podcast. Now, if you have listened to the pod before, you will know that there is a DIY section. If you are new around here, then the DIY section aims to give you, as the listeners, an exercise, tool or resource that you can add to your SciComm toolkits to help you bring your science stories to life. And that isn't going to change for these interview episodes. So for this episode today, there's not just one tool, but two. The first one is going to be Erin's science communication internship post. It's full of so many great paid SciComm internship opportunities from across the globe. 
And if you are listening to this, you find there is one that isn't on there that you know of, I would highly recommend that you get in touch with Erin wherever you can find her on social and suggest it to her because it's a really useful resource for everyone. Having done some science communication internships myself, I cannot stress how important they were to help guide me in my own science communication career. So if we can help give the gift of internships and paid internships to as many other people as possible, then I think that gives us even more hope for the future of science communication. And the second tool for today is more of a task that I want you to do. From our discussions with Erin, we could see the importance of having an editor or someone who would look over your writing. Now, I'm not asking you to go out there and find a professional editor who's going to give you all the tips and tricks who you might have to pay. I want you to go out there and find an editor buddy. Maybe you can do a bit of a partnership where you can send them whatever science writing you're doing they can send theirs to you and you can do a bit of a critique for each other. I personally would encourage you to find an editor buddy who first of all is a scientist but then I also want you to try and find another editor buddy who is not a scientist. Now this could be your parents, your siblings, a friend, anyone you can think of. Now, I think it's really important that you have both a scientist and a non-scientist editor buddy because obviously the scientist has more of a niche knowledge. They understand the world of science more. But the purpose of science communication is to communicate your science with your target audience. So having that non-scientist eye over your video script or your next blog post They can point out anything to you that they just don't follow and you can correct that before you publish anything or you move to the next stage of the project, whatever it may be that you're working on. So when you finish listening to this episode, please go out and find yourself some editing buddies because having that tool and that outside eye looking at your work is going to be so, so valuable for your science communication confidence and a key tool that you can have in your SciComm toolkit. And that is that for this week's episode. I really hope you enjoyed this first interview. I personally really enjoyed getting to talk to someone else about science communication for a change. So I hope it was just as refreshing for you. And there are plenty more where this interview came from too. I have more fabulous guests lined up just waiting to share their wisdom with you as well. Doing this podcast is really helping me feel good currently, given the global situation. So I hope you are doing those things that make you feel good too. And I'd love to think that this podcast gives you just a little bit of joy. Come and find me on Instagram if you have enjoyed this episode. I'm at soph.talks.science or you can follow the podcast too at SciComm Toolkit. This is where you're going to get all the latest announcements about new seasons and new guests in the future. So if you don't want to miss out, give us a little follow on there. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast, rate and review if you can. And shout out to Fiona S, I believe, 
for the podcast first ever review. Yay. Fiona says, some helpful tools. I had come across Science Capital before, but Sophie has now made me aware of other frameworks and tools available to help you define your audience. A good length of episode and Sophie's enthusiasm for Psychom is evident. Oh, makes me feel a little warm inside and it's still really surreal that people are writing reviews (laughs) about my podcast. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I really do love getting your feedback, positive or negative, because I really do want to make this the resource that everyone can come to. So thanks to everyone who has sent me a cheeky DM so far with some thoughts as well. I will see you again in the next episode that will be brimming full of more tools and tips to give you some more Psycom confidence. Bye!